Good morning. Uh, Romans chapter 11 will be our text this morning. Uh, Last Sunday, I began our sermon on Romans chapter 10 with a story uh, about how your car will only run if you have an engine. By far, the one piece of your car that really makes it go is the engine. Ironically, Thursday morning, I got into my car and turned the key, and it would not start. Turns out my engine was just fine. Uh, My mechanic tells me there's lots of other pieces in your car that you also have to get right in order to make it go. Uh, If your fuel injector is not putting gas in the right place, it won't go. If your your radiator is leaking fluid, it also won't go. Uh, He also informed me that it's really important to have brakes that are new because otherwise your car won't stop, which is also an important part of the process. I tell you all of this because, similarly, in the book of Romans, um, there's lots of different pieces that really make this text work. Uh, Lots of things that we need to understand and understand properly in order for us to really get a hold of what Paul is trying to teach us, what God, through Paul, is trying to teach us about how to live the Christian life, um, about how to understand the grand plan of God in the world. All right. The main theology of Romans, if you haven't gotten this by now, I can't help you, uh, but the main theology in Romans is the covenant. I think I've said that every week. I've intended to say that every week uh, because the covenant is what Romans is all about. Uh, We are currently in chapters 9 through 11 uh, where Paul is explaining how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of this covenant. And in 9 through 11, he gets into how is it possible that God, through Jesus, can make this covenant happen and let so many Gentiles into the kingdom and yet keep so many Jews out? How is it that God can actually be faithful to His covenant when so many of His own people, the Jews, are not a part of this new kingdom? And we started in chapter 9 where Paul talks about the process of narrowing. Says ever since the covenant first began with Abraham, God has narrowed down who is it that's in the covenant. It wasn't both of Abraham's sons that was in the covenant, it was only one. Later we get the 12 tribes of Israel, they're all in the covenant, but God narrows it down further, and ultimately only two tribes will carry the covenant. We finally get to the remnant. We're only a handful of people in Jesus' day are even trying to live by the covenant. Paul argues that the narrowing happens even further till finally the only person who ever really kept the covenant at all was Jesus. And that's chapter 9. Then last week, we did chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he talks about how the exile wasn't really over until Jesus restored the kingdom. You really want to be a part of the people of God? Then you're the people that make that right confession. You're the people that have circumcision of the heart. The true remnant that comes out of the exile are those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who declare Jesus is Lord. All right, now in chapter 11, Paul turns, and instead of talking to the Jewish objectors, who don't like that so many of their own people are out and so many of the Gentiles are in, now Paul turns and he starts to address us. Okay? He starts to talk to all of us Gentiles, all of us who didn't come in the kingdom the right way, okay, but instead came in through Jesus. Notice what he says starting in verse 13. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. 
For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. All right, Paul says, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be wonderful if because so many of these Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom, so many Gentiles proclaim Jesus is Lord or accepting the gospel, wouldn't it be wonderful if Paul's own people, the Jews, would look at that with jealousy and say, I want what they have. Wouldn't it be great if Jews would become part of the family of God because of the jealousy of so many Gentiles coming in? And that's Paul's ultimate hope. He wants his own people to convert like he did to see Jesus as the Savior. So now he turns in the main point of chapter 11. Uh, starts in verse 17. And here he starts to use a metaphor of an olive tree. And he's talking directly to all of us who didn't come in the front door to Christianity, right? We didn't come in by being Jewish. Instead, we sort of came in the side door to God's family. Uh, we were put into the family of God through Jesus. Okay, notice his imagery. Start at verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? All right, so here's the big metaphor. We have an olive tree. Some branches were cut off and some wild branches have been grafted in to the natural plant. And the first thing that anyone hearing Paul's metaphor would have said in the ancient world is that he gets his own metaphor wrong. Okay? That's not the way you graft olive branches, as I'm sure all of you are fully aware, right? Okay, the way you're supposed to graft olive branches is you take a wild olive tree, okay, because wild olive trees grow bigger and stronger. Okay, and you start with the wild olive tree and you cut off some of those branches and then you take cultivated olive branches and you graft them onto the wild tree. Why? Okay, cultivated olive branches produce more fruit. So if you take the cultivated branches, cut them off, put them on a wild tree, then you can get a tree that grows bigger and stronger and produces more fruit. Nobody ever would have done it the way Paul says to do it, where you take the cultivated tree and put wild branches on it because you would get a smaller plant uh, with less fruit. Right, but Paul's doing this very specifically this way because he's trying to get us to understand what's going on with the Jews and the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Okay, we'll break this down. It's pretty simple, right? He says the tree is the covenant family of God. 
right? From the very beginning, God had a designated covenant redeemed from slavery people, people who would hold within them the seed of restoration for all of creation. Okay, the children of Abraham are the family of God. Okay, the wild branches are Gentiles, right? And it makes sense to call them wild because we've been growing on our own with no intervention from the gardener. Okay, the cultivated branches are the Jews. Okay, this makes sense. They've been the pruned family of God. Right? In fact, numerous places in the Old Testament, you can read prophecies about how God's family is the tree. God is the loving gardener who's been pruning his tree. Okay, specifically, you read Jeremiah, one of the big images in that text, of who we are as the Jewish people of God, as we are the people that God has been cultivating. And cultivating isn't always fun. Right? It's not always pleasant to get pieces snipped off of you. But if you want to be as healthy as possible, you let God garden in your life. Right? Now, the main story that Paul is telling us is that this is because of their lack of faith that God has pruned out so many of the native cultivated branches. Okay? Many of the Jewish branches have been removed from the family. Okay? Also, because they found faith, Many of the Gentile branches have been grafted in, right? So what matters is that you're part of this family of God. Whether you got there because you were a cultivated branch that's always been there, or because you were a wild branch that's been grafted in, either way, you're great so long as what? You're part of the family of God. All right, so what are the implications of this? Here's my olive tree implication. All right, what keeps a branch on the tree? faith, okay? Whether you're a Jewish branch or a Gentile branch, what matters is that you actually believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you actually believe that Jesus is Lord. All right, so can the Jews get back in the kingdom? Absolutely. How? By faith. Now, can the Gentiles lose their place on the tree? Absolutely. How? By a lack of faith, okay? You see the theme here. All right, We have to have faith. At the end of the day, the point that Paul wants us to understand is that your place in the family of God isn't based on anything other than your willingness to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you really believe Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection? Do you understand that salvation comes to you as a gift given from Jesus and not as a result of anything you did to earn it? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple? Okay, that's the olive tree. Does that all work? All right, here's some applications from this. Okay, the first one should be pretty obvious to us, right? It's have faith. You really want to be a part of the family of God, have faith. You know, the way that Israel so often failed uh, in their history, you go back and you read the Old Testament and you read about all these stories of how Israel was trying to follow God, but then they would fail and they would get punished. And then later they would try to follow God again, but they would fail and they would get punished. Okay, and we keep reading those stories and we keep saying, how in the world could those people mess up so many times in the same ways? If I was living back then, I wouldn't have messed up like that. I would have had faith in God, right? Can you imagine people who were so dumb as to set up idols and worship those idols instead of the living God? I never would have done that. Aren't you glad that we're not like those people? We're a whole lot smarter than they were. Okay? Tends to be the way we read the Old Testament. 
right? But part of the problem with that reading of the Old Testament is that throughout the history of Israel, they very rarely ever completely abandoned God. It wasn't like they woke up one day and said, you know what, we don't want to worship Yahweh anymore. We're just going to worship Baal and Molech and all these other gods. Instead, what they would do is they'd wake up and say, okay, we're going to keep worshiping Yahweh. We're going to keep doing things the way God told us to do. But we're also going to start worshiping all these other things as well, right? Okay, think about it like King Solomon, for instance, right? He's the one that built the grandest temple that God ever had on earth. Okay, he's the one that offered more bulls and goats and spilled more blood on the altar than anyone who has ever lived. And yet God ripped half of the kingdom away from his descendants because of his unfaithfulness. Solomon never gave up worshiping at the temple. He never gave up offering the right sacrifices at the right time on the right altar in the right way. Why was he accused of losing his faith? Because in addition to worshiping the God of Israel, he also worshiped all the gods of these other places, right? Usually, when we lack faith, it's not that we've said, well, God, I'm not going to follow you anymore. When we lack faith, what it is is we say, okay, I want to have God, but I also want to have all of these other things as well. I want to have faith in God, but I'm not going to let him be my sole source of security. I'm also going to trust in myself and all these other things. You know, I, I really want to follow God, but I also want to find comfort in all of these other things. You know, I really want to follow God on Sunday, but I'm not going to completely change my life for him on Monday through Friday. Okay, the danger of unbelief is not that we will abandon God. The danger of unbelief is that we will continue to come to church every Sunday, and then with everything else we do also have all this other stuff. That makes sense? So what is your source of security? What's your source of comfort? What's your source of strength? What's your source of hope? Okay, do not fool yourself by saying that since you're in church every Sunday, that you are fully putting your faith in God. Are we honestly relying on Him as the source of our salvation? That's what it means to have faith. All right, number two. Not only does Paul want us to have faith, but he also tells us, don't be arrogant. And this is really what I think is the main application point that Paul is trying to get across to us with his use of the tree metaphor, right? He's saying, okay, you Gentiles, you have been grafted into the family of God, but don't then turn around and look down on the Jews who are now outside of the kingdom and think, well, I'm much better than they are. You remember in Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus tells a story about a man that had two sons. Okay, one son comes up to him and says, dad, I would really be better off if you were dead, so I would like my share of the inheritance now. He takes a share of the inheritance, he goes off, he invests it in some good growth stock mutual funds, gets a great return, and prospers, right? No, what happens? He blows it. Okay? Wild living, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever he found in the land far away, blows all his money, wakes up one day in a pig pen, comes crawling back to dad on his hands and knees, father, I have sinned, but before he can even get the words out, what does his father do? Does his father come up and say, man, you really messed up, I can't believe you would dare show your face back here. Or does he run up, give him a big hug, put the robe on him, put the ring on him and say, son, I'm so glad the son of mine who is dead is now alive. What was lost has been found, right? Throws a big party, slaughters the fatted calf, okay? We're so glad that this son is home. Older brother, he's not exactly thrilled to see his younger brother, is he? He doesn't come home and say, brother, I'm so glad to see you. No, instead he says, I can't believe that you would dare show your face here. I can't believe that I've been faithful all these years and you haven't been, right? And the father has to tell his older brother, 
He says, look, everything I have is yours. You're always welcome at my table. Okay? Now, both sons are part of the father's table. Imagine, if you will, that the sequel to that story comes out. And in the sequel, the younger brother goes to his older brother and says, I can't believe you're so stupid. I am so much better than you are. Okay, I'm better than you are because I got a big party thrown in my honor. I'm better than you are because I got to spend a whole lot of money. Now I get to sit at dad's table. I'm better than you are because I have a seat at the father's table. Would that make any sense? No. Okay, the father would have to sit him down and explain to him, you're not sitting at my table because you're so wonderful. You're not sitting at my table because you've been so faithful. You're not sitting at my table because you were so smart and good looking. You are sitting at my table because of grace and mercy. So here's the, the lesson for us from the olive tree. Okay? We don't have a seat at the table of the Lord because we're so awesome. We have a seat at the Lord's table because dad irrationally loved us in spite of what a truly wretched person we are. We are here by grace. So it would be inappropriate for us to then look at people around us who don't believe in the gospel like we do and think, man, we're better than those people are. I mean, look at how those pagans around us live. Can you imagine living like those people? I mean, can you imagine watching the news and you see all the stupid things that people do around us and you think, man, those are some stupid people. I'm so glad I'm not like that. I'm so glad I know better. You know why you know better? Because of the grace of God Almighty. Okay? We are not better than our neighbors who don't live like we do. We are just saved by grace. Okay? We should desperately want to share that grace with those pagans living around us who don't know like we know. And never lose sight of the fact that the reason we are able to live the lives that we live is because God loved us. Don't be arrogant. All right, notice where Paul turns next. Start in verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, here's the final point, and I think this is important for us. Number three, we are Israel. Okay, we are Israel. I think when Paul in these last few verses goes to explain how all Israel will be saved, he's still talking about that olive tree metaphor. He's saying that everybody on that olive tree, whether you're a Jewish branch or a Gentile branch, you will be saved. And the definition of true Israel is whoever's on that tree. You know, sometimes people want to make this into a big political thing um, about how we need to support the nation of Israel, okay, which I'm all in favor of us supporting the nation of Israel, but not because of what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11. Okay? What he's talking about is that all of us will be saved because we are Israel. Now, this should change the way we read our Bibles. When we read all those Old Testament stories about how God delivered them out of Egypt, it's not that God delivered them out of Egypt, He delivered us out of Egypt. God didn't take them to a promised land, He took us to a promised land. It wasn't those people long ago who were unfaithful and then God brought back, it was us. Okay, this is our family, this is who we are a part of, we are a part of the people of God. We are the restored kingdom of Israel. Ultimately, 
what matters is that we have the right Savior. It's not us, it's Jesus Christ. Have you truly accepted the gospel of Jesus? Have you really put him on in baptism? Are you a full disciple of Jesus following him with your life? If you are, you're on the olive tree and you will be saved. Uh, We'll continue with this next week. We'll get into chapter 12 where he talks about some more applications from this, uh, what a spirit-filled life really looks like, uh, what it looks like to offer our lives fully to Jesus. Uh, At this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We'd love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life today. Uh, Before we sing that song, I'd like to close with a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.